all have different beliefs and experiences and values along the way but we do have the wonderful power to listen and talk to each other and just simplifying what we've created to be this aid sector and this charity sector it's not it's not a sector it's not a career it's just a person helping another person and we all have the capability to do it hello and welcome to the force of nature podcast with me clover hogan today's episode is with anna jones co-founder of refuge aid In 2015, at the peak of the immigration crisis in Greece, Anna, just 25, decided to pack up her life to help on the ground. She saw firsthand how badly NGOs were handling the crisis, which is why today she runs her own. In this conversation, we explore the path to befriending failure, the source of society's polarization, and how to uncover your inner superhero to overcome anything. Anna embodies what it means to be tenacious, trailblazing, and lead with your heart. Be sure to take note. We continue to perpetuate a mode of activism and responsibility that is broken and that does not work. The society that's being created is one that doesn't value everybody, doesn't value you if you're different. The status quo isn't values-led and and so let's bring on that challenge. I have a whole new understanding for the strength of human. I want to be able to look back at my life and think, I did something which actually changed the world and made a difference. Welcome to the Force of Nature podcast with your host, Clover Hogan. So if we dive straight in, Anna, Mm -hmm. I would love if we could start with what your catalyst was and the moment at which you decided to stop scrolling and start solving for a problem that many of us care about Mm -hmm. but feel completely overwhelmed by. For sure, my catalyst, the definitive one, would be um, the image of Aileen Curdy. So I remember that I'd already started following and reading and getting more engaged in particularly what was going on in Calais um, at that time and also what was happening in Greece. But that image on the front page of every paper was a defining moment for me and and for Tamsin, our co-founder, who, you know, we just both in our we didn't know each other. And for both of us in our lives, it was very much the moment of just, no, this, you know, I can't. I can't stand by and just watch this continue to happen and I need to at least try my best to do something to alleviate it. And what does that look like? Now that looks like um, uh, an organization of nine of us. So um, we ended up from that point volunteering in Lesbos. So no kind of previous experience in working in charity sector or humanitarian field, but just like you said, this catalytic moment of being like, I need to change something and I need to do something. And so we used social media to find people working in Greece and in Lesbos. And we worked with them to ask what they needed. And resoundingly, they needed medical aid at that point. And so we went out to Greece with a load of medication and 12 doctors and nurses that we managed to coordinate on social media. Um, And yeah it was horrific for us it was a really tough experience what we witnessed and also to see what people were going through in Europe and very one of a bit of a um, realization of what the humanitarian sector looks like on the ground and in a crisis zone in reality as kind of different to what we perceived it to be how was it different um so what I studied so I studied in international relations and and while I was studying at uni it was always kind of this big oh you know one day I want to work for the UN or a big INGO and looking back I'm not really sure where that came from I think it was very much a perceived career move rather than really understanding within myself why I'd want to do that and then after university I'd um 
volunteered and then decided to go down a legal pathway instead as I saw that as a bit more of a practical way of supporting people but still donated to big charities and um, you know trusted that in times of crisis that they would be there and that they would be responding in a really pragmatic and informed way and in a way that was you know like I studied at university about white savior complex and like you know the effects of short-term aid and and planning for the long-term scenarios and from what I studied at university then perceived that that was kind of token within those organizations that you couldn't just swan in as maybe people had done previously and put a plaster on something that you had to engage with the community and fully understand what was happening and where where it was going to go and what you could do to help those communities that were affected on a long-term basis um and so when we went to Greece initially we we took all this medication thinking that we would kind of plug into something bigger you know plug into this incredible response that people had the resources to to create um and we didn't find that at all so so when we arrived in Greece it was November 2015 and so it'd been in the headlines and um yeah we we assumed that there would be save the children the UN um UNICEF people there and what we found was we found one woman from the UN um who was doing a three months needs assessment as the fatalities like daily were you know in double figures and we were seeing six to eight thousand people arriving um I think per week at that point and yeah you know just no food no water no medical aid nowhere to house people no one would travel support um no processing you know no no claims being taken it was an absolute like mess and um yeah so it was horrifying to think that somebody would need to stay there for three months before they, they would be able to access support for people um and then more horrifying was that when under international pressure from the media, I think, the NGOs did decide to respond. One of the things that was really challenging for me is that we were meeting people fleeing war who had so much in common with us. You know, they were, they'd had careers, they had aspirations to study, they were um, beauty influencers or bodybuilders, <laughs> you know, like people from, from all different types of background. Um, resoundingly, they just wanted the opportunities that we all have, you know, to live somewhere safe and private for their children to be able to go to school and to be able to support themselves and not rely on anyone else. And yet when this NGO, when the large NGOs bar MSF, who were incredible, um, but when the majority of, of large NGOs responded, what we saw was they didn't listen to those affected communities and they didn't really listen to the Greek community either. You know, they went with their status quo of, well, this works in Sierra Leone or this this works in Afghanistan. And, and this template of, okay, we're going to bring in tents for one, you know, in a freezing winter with snow. We're going to get people to queue up in lines three three times a day for meals and we're going to push people into this forced dependency and we're going to make people need us essentially rather than listen you know what is it that you need um and it was really challenging in Greece because the host community really wanted to help so much as well so the local Greeks were saying how can we help people get into housing how can we get people into work if they're going to stay or uh, that that's kind of since the borders closed and before that how can we help people safely move through Europe you know how can we help them get to wherever their families are or wherever they're going um and so that was, yeah, it was just a real stark contrast and really difficult to take. And it wasn't any individual person either. It was 
the individual people working for large organizations all had such incredible intentions and were motivated in the same way that we were by talking to and listening to those arriving, but worked within these structures that didn't allow them to kind of just respond as a human. Um, yeah. So they're completely beholden to the bureaucracy of those organizations. Absolutely. No matter how positive their intent, as you said. And how has that situation evolved since? Um, I think there's been more accountability from the grassroots movement. So I think what we're seeing within migration within a European context for sure is that um, through social media and through kind of this mobilization of a grassroots movement that we're holding larger organizations to account more. You know, it's not something that they can pretend they're not doing. They've seen it. Whether that impacts change, I'm not sure, because I, I think some of those, you know, structures are so bureaucratic and such they've, you know, they're their own monster that even within them, people trying to change struggle to move all the parts they need to. Um, so I think it's changed in that there is slightly more accountability, but nowhere near enough. This is hugely um, eye opening, though, because I think a lot of us kind of almost fall into a relation like a a sense of complacency and a a dependency on these big organizations that we naturally as you did before you went to the front lines yeah assume are doing the right things and and have the knowledge and 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 know what they're doing yeah but you experience firsthand that in fact they are very poorly organized on the ground and the consequence of people's lives absolutely and and also you know the consequences is people's lives, but also no no system change, no structure change. Mm-hmm. And um, because it's their knee-jerk reaction is this structure and to check everything, there's a lack of innovation because people are so afraid to take risk and afraid to think outside of the box. And and that's the sole reason, you know, that, well, that and our incredible clients is are the reasons that our organization has been successful is because we didn't have to go through the UN mm-hmm. grant funding route we were really lucky that we we had supporters and we and we were funded initially by your everyday person you know we we crowdfunded on facebook and that gave us the movement to do what we needed to with the money it wasn't beholden to anyone else exactly agility and 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 freedom to be able to spend it according to the challenges that you were seeing in real time exactly and react human to human you know at that point we were i mean we don't work in anything medical now but at that point we were supporting people's medical needs and if someone presented themselves with literally we had a lot of cases where people had trench fit you know we had the money to go to a a shop and buy en masse walking boots Mm. And we know for sure that those large organizations didn't have that. Oxfam came to us because they couldn't buy, the way their funding was restricted, they weren't able to buy children's glasses. And so a lot of the children on the boats on the way from Izmir to Lesbos or, or any of the other islands had lost their, their glasses. And so you had children who are already traumatized going through this incredible upheaval in their life and now can't see from something so basic as children's glasses. And they contacted us prior to us even being a registered organization. We were at that point a group of volunteers to ask us for 400 euros to go and buy glasses. Um, and it that just shows, I mean, that's one example. And so a couple years down the line or a few years down the line, um, what are some of the biggest challenges from a communications perspective and how are you addressing them as an organization and mm-hmm. how much is that kind of part of your work? Because as I understand it, most of your focus is really on assimilation here in the UK yeah. and in helping people rebuild their lives again um, rather than being back on the ground in Greece. Yeah. So we now work um, in language. So we support people to get their English language to a fluency level and then beyond that, a qualifying level so you can get 
different variations of English language qualifications. Um, and then our other program supports people back to their previous career. So if you are qualified um, in your home country and you want to return to your career in the UK, you have to um, re requalify your qualifications. So you have to get the UK equivalency of whatever it is. And that's across sector. So um, a plumber, beautician, neurosurgeon, lorry driver, whatever it might be, you have to get the UK equivalency. And it's prohibitively expensive. It costs, so our, the average, so for a lorry driver, it's £6,500. Far out. Yeah. That's staggering. Mad. For a dentist, it's eight grand. Lawyer is, you know, upwards of £10,000. And these are folks who have left, fled their home countries, are coming here with absolutely nothing, nothing. with the clothes on their backs. Yeah, exactly. And, and if, if if they had money in their home countries, the currency value will be usually in most like war-torn war countries so low and they would have spent whatever they have on getting to safety in, in most cases. Um, and so the, you also have that alongside the fact that as a refugee in the UK, you have no access to credit. So no access to an overdraft facility, no access to a credit card, no access to lending. Um, and that's because you have a lack of bank statement history in this country and also a lot of countries from banks are perceived to be risky um so you get sporadic banks bank accounts being closed down etc which makes it really hard to access capital to cover that cost that you need to return to work and then forces you to be dependent on benefits um and so our two programs is that we work with language schools throughout the UK and this was something we found is that there is an outpouring of goodwill out there and and the reason we started working in the UK is people we'd met in Greece or people who we'd become aware of through our local community who'd arrived as refugees in the UK um, wanted to get back on their feet so there was four people we knew who lived near us Two of them were students um, who disrupted their studies and they'd been forced to flee. And two of them were healthcare professionals, so a neurosurgeon and a dentist. And their English was at a point that we could have a broken conversation um, or use an interpreter, but not definitely at fluency. And resoundingly, they all just, you know, wanted to get back to education or employment. Um, and so we were like, okay, well, cool. Well, what can we do to help you? You know, just on a personal level, like how can we help you get there? And particularly with Kareem, who's a neurosurgeon, it was, you know, we were very naive. We are like, oh, the UK is such a, you know, an amazing place of opportunity. We'll want you to get back to work. We'll want you to get back to university. You know, we value education so highly. I'm sure there will be amazing structures in place to support this. And then we started looking into the ESOL provision, of English language so there was a lot of press around how David Cameron had tried to increase ESOL provision and make it you know for good and for bad um, and when we looked into it it was just horrifying you know most of the English language classes that were provided by the government were four hours a week and they were single level lessons in areas so whether you were a beginner or upper intermediate you'd be sat in the same lesson which is impossible to learn on top of that, four hours a week isn't enough for anyone really to learn another language. And so after six months, people would become so disheartened with the process that they would end up dropping out. And, and the mental health impact also is it was huge of mm. not being able to learn English and makes everything seem hostile. You know, how do you get your child a place at school if you're unable to communicate? How do you know where the bus is going if you can't ask? How do you before you're even thinking about renting a house or getting a job you know the very basic things and so we went to our local for-profit private English language school that usually caters for students from quite affluent countries who come over pay and pay to learn English and the courses cost between about 250 and 500 pounds a week 
which is totally unattainable mm. for you know anyone that we were working with. And so we went to the first school, which was Wimbledon School of English, which we didn't know was the number one in the UK. Um, yeah, <laughs> this is an absolute fluke. Um, and we just said to the receptionist, you know, like, do you do anything to support refugees in the local community? And we've got four people who we know who live down the road, basically, who really need some English language help. And she said, wait there one minute and came downstairs um, with five members of their senior staff. And they'd, they'd been crying out to help. They'd gone to the British Council and said, what can we do? And they'd said, you know, we'll organize a two week trip to Jordan. And they couldn't, they didn't have the resources to do that. And they said, what do you need? And we just said, look, we can cover the travel and the exam fee, which is relatively low and make sure that that person is supported with their legal support and housing, et cetera. Um, if if you can provide the tuition and they were like yeah go for it you can have the spaces for as long as you need so we focus on the language and getting people's language to fluency and then we focus on getting their qualifications recognized Um, and now we're working quite closely on finding those employment opportunities for people and in terms of communication I think it's been it's been challenging in that we have created the media and the politicians have created this narrative that someone who flees their home um, is less intelligent, has less aspirations and might not, you know, isn't is complacent essentially when they get here and they're quite happy to not work and drain this economy. And yet we've never met anybody who doesn't want to go back to education or go into employment. Um, And so, and also not only that, but we meet so many people with incredible skills and experience who have so much to bring that we don't have here. The neurosurgeon I mentioned, he was in a situation recently um, where they were operating on a brain and a piece of technology failed. And I mean, he's had experience working in a war zone where they have no technology and he knew how to do what the technology did on his own. And so did it, saved a life, and then ended up, you know, showing other doctors how to do that. Incredible. It's it's incredible, and it's also hard to communicate that yeah. on a on a larger level because you you're just faced with quite a hostile um, environment in which to communicate that. So mm. we've been looking at how we do it by sharing people's stories because I think that's one thing that's incredibly powerful is when you're confronted with one person's story you know, and you can't dispute it and it's not a statistic and it's not an opinion. It is, it's their story. Um, so sharing more of that. And then also on the flip side, looking at the stats too, in terms of the finances. And I think it's sad that we're in a position where for some people, that's what we do have to communicate with. Mm. Um, and that's what's important to them. And it's not, you know, helping another human being. It's actually, well, this person is going to pay taxes. Mm. You know, that shouldn't, in my opinion, be the argument, but it does help us to communicate with audiences who might otherwise not want to hear or get engaged. Drawing back to this kind of wider piece around public opinion and and narrative and rhetoric, um, it's, it's hugely depressing to see how xenophobic the rhetoric is here in the UK. I wonder what your thoughts are on how you can begin to change that en masse. You've talked about kind of sharing people's stories. Is part of it also reclaiming the narrative about what we're trying to work toward? How do we begin to paint a better picture of what is possible when we invite people not only into our hearts but into our homes and think about what that kind of society and future could look like? I spoke with my grandma recently about um, like her generation. So she, she was alive during the war, the Second World War. And 
you know, her generation and her perception of asylum and refugees and how like we've lost that education that we had in that situation. So she remembers in in all communities and throughout the media as well when um, the UK supported lots of refugees both after the Second World War and also in, with the Bosnian conflict too. She said that it was a pr- it was a sense of pride within communities. People were proud mm. to had to have be supporting people and to be helping a fellow human being. And I think we've lost that slightly. I think there's a lack of, and whether it's to do with community and moral obligation, I don't know. Um, but I think we've lost the pride that comes from you know supporting somebody not for anything other than the fact that you want to help another person. I think engaging and having conversations around things that we find challenging is also important. So I think what we need to do more of is give space for people's opinions and finding common threads. So even if your opinion on something that you feel so passionately about is polarized with somebody that you're discussing it with, just finding a way of communicating with them and finding that common like common ground and working back from that, I think is absolutely key. I think when you're talking with people, you know, what is the common goal within with within those group and within who you're engaging with and how do you get there? And understanding that it's always going to be fractured in some way. You know, I've had clients of ours who have asylum in the UK and we we also have very different opinions, you know, about how support for people with asylum should be. You know, you might have your opinion doesn't define the relationship that you have with that person it's just part of it and we were talking about how important it is to yeah. have you know christmases where <laughs> you bring around <laughs> lots of family members and lots of really diverse opinions yeah um because at the end of the day it is about how to maintain those those human relationships and those connections and ultimately as you said how to find that common ground on, on a previous podcast we we're talking to ellie hansen this clinical psychologist on on value systems mm-hmm. and we were looking at why it is that typically conservative leaning people are kind of steering away from you know topics like climate change even though in many instances they were the original kind of custodians of the land and of nature conservation for different reasons so it's figuring out what that kind of common language can look like yeah so that we can you know agree on the kind of basics and then find a way to navigate from there yeah um but as you said it can be a little bit grandiose if you head over to you know creating a a very detailed kind of vision of what you think the future should look like i think some of the reasons that conversations get so polarized is that we've we struggle to give the space to change your mind i know with my own family in heated conversations about things that are really important to us so climate change migration money um yeah everything it's become difficult for people to change their mind and not feel like they're held accountable to a previous opinion that they might have had Mm. we live in this increased polarized society you know technology has become it's amazing but it's also become a bit of a beast in terms of you know perpetuating your worldview and your opinion and surrounding you technologically with people with the same mindset um that it's really difficult to change your mind and challenging on something and then also to kind of have that space to say you know what I don't know that I 100% agree with that anymore. Brexit was a really good example you know it, it became so hostile that people started to put the way they voted as part of their identity and that's really challenging you know if you've voted a yes or no or a leave or a remain and that becomes part of your identity there's no wiggle room there to say you know well I have doubt because yeah. you're kind of identified by that decision. I pride myself on being an open person and wanting to be open and I think 
I did ultimately vote Remain and I and I think being part of the European Union was a better thing then. However, I'd been in Greece and I'd watched what the EU was capable of and the negative, you know, the children were drowning and we weren't doing anything about it as a union and actually the EU was making it more hostile. And But it wasn't okay for me to have that conversation anywhere. I was on the fence for a long time and but my family had already pigeonholed me in one way and then the people you work with and the people you socialize with yeah. and I found it really hard to have like a middle of the road yes. conversation with anybody yeah I think my generation is responsible for is this like kind of cancel culture so mm. people being held accountable for things that they said a long time ago yeah. and don't necessarily still hold to be true and it creates this real kind of fear I think also of of being able to explore that messy middle yeah. and explore the gray area and the nuance which if anything is what we need most desperately right now because it's the only way that we're going to stop polarizing one another I'd be curious to hear a little more about you know social media and your experience mm -hmm. uh, perhaps on a personal level dealing with this challenge but also in the context of, of your organization and what you're doing because I'm very aware that on the one hand, it can be such a positive kind of amplifier um, for impact. Uh, I remember you telling me about, you know, um, people being able to send one another coordinates to find yeah. loved ones, you yeah. know, and even the fact that you and your co-founder Tamsin found one another via a Facebook, Facebook group, which <laughs> yeah. is pretty cool. But then at the same time, these major institutions not being held accountable for um, the xenophobia and the racism and the horrible bigotry yeah. that is flourishing on these platforms um, and how they can act as these terrible silos and also the level of government institution then intervening to be yeah. able to uh, carry out prejudice against people based on whether they're immigrants or not. I think it's social media has been the greatest gift and the biggest worry for a long time I like for, for, for me personally and for our organization in terms of like yeah so Tamsin and I met on a Facebook group basically when I was feeling when I had that moment of I need to do more you know being 25 the thing I did was go on social media and mm. look for what I could I could do and I joined a um, refugee welcome Facebook group that was collecting food and you know clothing items and sending them to Syria and Greece and Tamsin had joined it as well because she lived in the same community as me but we'd never met we didn't have you know any mutual friends nothing in common and um, well at that point and she wrote a post on the day that that image on the day that Aylan was the same age as um, her youngest and for her that you know she wrote the post saying I can't just sit back anymore and in our relative privilege and not do anything and I'd commented and Luke who's now a very good friend and also a, a surgeon had commented as well saying should we meet up for a coffee and just have a brainstorm from that we found on Facebook you know on social media um an amazing woman called Meryl who was in Lesbos who's Dutch you know we never would have crossed paths with ever without having that platform and we just dropped her a Facebook message because she'd been blogging and essentially and writing posts about what she was experiencing in Lesbos and had gone out there from the images that she'd seen and you know she, I remember talking to her and she was like I had no idea what I was turning up to I'd packed a bikini because I thought you know I could go and do some volunteering and help out and then also have some downtime um, and she turned up to absolute hell and was getting three hours sleep a night and it, that you know we messaged her and we said what do you need and it was from her that she said I need this um and not just us, you know, like help refugees started from a hashtag, the worldwide tribe started from a blog post. It was all through social media and it's created this movement and we're able to know what's happening on the ground. Um, alongside that, when I was in, when we were in Greece, my way of dealing with what we were seeing and witnessing there every day was to write about it. And I, that was my outlet and still is now for 
dealing with the trauma that we see so much of and those posts I put on the Facebook page and they ended up generating you know a lot of awareness of what was happening on the ground and also a lot of money it was an amazing fundraising tool and it leveraged money that for sure saved lives that we saw save lives and when you're reading a an account about a group of people who are on the ground and need medicine or need tents or xyz it makes it more comfortable and you you're more confident with where your money's going and the impact that it's having and that's continued and i think so many organizations and grassroots movements have come from that and for that it's amazing it's also like you were saying the communication tool there's a film called oxygen that some close friends produced and made and that was about a text message that a boy sent that saved a, a lorry full of people's lives and so it definitely is incredible and I don't I fear for what you know how much worse some situations would be without it um but at the same time it's also terrifying in that people are sharing such important data and life changing data and information about themselves um, on a platform that doesn't really have any security. So the Institute of Migration and the EU were working together on a skills audit and they wanted to, I, I really believe from a from a good intention perspective, wanted to pull together people's um, employment skills and previous experience onto a database for all of e the EU so that they could match up the skills that people had with job opportunities throughout the EU. Which in theory sounds like, you know, a relatively good idea, but then you've got a quantifiable way of saying, well, this person is worth X amount of money because they can work in this job. So what about all the people who are fleeing for their lives who are young people who have no work experience or are illiterate or don't have access to education from their home countries? Do they not deserve the opportunity to live somewhere yeah. safe? And I think that's really reflective of also what happens when you try to solve a problem from the top down without actually being on the grassroots. As you continue this work every day you'd be hearing horrifying really harrowing stories how do you maintain your emotional resilience and how do you keep on keeping on when you see the scale of the problem and, and just how enormous it is I have a whole new understanding for the strength of human like the the emotional resilience that we the capability that we do have is astounding and and so inspiring and I have um, an amazing woman who has had a you know difficult to believe incredibly hard life where she has been trafficked three times you know she's had her eggs harvested she has children you know she has been through absolute how lived under IS lived under you know um governments that have subject her to horrific torture and yet she is sat in front of you desperately explaining how about like extraction of teeth and how much being a dentist is what defines her and how passionate she is about getting back to work as a dentist but also inspiring other people that they can do the same it's hard not to come out of that quite positive one of the things that I struggle with is the policy side I think I find it really challenging and so selfishly for whatever reason I choose to stay away from that and we we definitely try and support it with kind of case studies and evidence and statistics we very much focus on people and practical solutions that we can that we can do so when we went into lending um we wanted the loans resoundingly to be interest free because for religious reasons people don't like to borrow money with interest on top of that if we'd put interest on it we'd have been subject to much more regulations than we are now um and 
we didn't we didn't want to make a loan unaffordable it wasn't why they were doing it we got laughed out of a lot of funding meetings with kind of big funders or, or more commercial funders saying you know well you're never going to get your money back lending to refugees lending to a group of people who fall under a statistic um and it ended up being that one of our largest funders is actually Europe's oldest private bank and their take on it was well this is back to basics banking yeah. you know it's relationship building this is yeah. how banking started yeah. you meet somebody you get to know them you basically make a judgment call on their character and whether you think they're good to give you the money back and then you give them the money Brilliant. and they and it's so interesting how like tech has made us build this whole system true. that actually doesn't really it's necessarily apply true, isn't it yeah, yeah. and it, it also shows the danger of assumptions yeah. right and I mean, the people that you were in those meetings with immediately just let their bias like get right in the way. What has the success of that program looked like? Um, well, the success of that loan program at the moment, Touchwood, um, is 100% repayments. So we haven't yet. So we've lent £710,000. Um, we haven't yet had anyone default. We've had numerous people, I think over 35 people now in work. So for those, for all of the people that we've lent to, um, around 85% of those are on benefits or in informal work. And I think that was something that was a huge eye-opener for me is that I didn't realize the levels of exploitation and slavery um, that, that are going on within the UK. And so people are forced into either, yeah, benefits or kind of very informal, very exploitative work. And so don't, aren't really earning a salary, as it were, or are taking very little money um, from the government. And the average salary post-loan is at the moment £38,000. So we're seeing people go into complete independence and then be able to help each other. So our alumni, as it were, are now coming back and either donating or mentoring or letting us know, hey, look, there's an employment opportunity come up at this firm I'm working at. Have you got anyone that needs some experience? I mean, it shows the impact of when you take a chance on someone and when that person has faced extreme adversity, the likes of which many of us here in our in our privilege bubble have, have never even, you mm -hmm. know, touched with, um, how that can completely revolutionize someone's life. So if we talk a little bit about the kind of relationship between climate mm -hmm. and the immigration crisis, yeah. um, could you share a little bit about what is kind of projected in that lens yeah. because we've seen the sort of social breakdown that happens from really bad policy in the EU. Yeah. Um, it's a problem that's just going to continue to get worse. It's for sure the thing that keeps me up at night. If you flee your home because of war or persecution under international law, you have a human right to be protected. If you are forced to flee your home because it's no longer livable due to climate issues, you aren't under any international protection. So no other state has any obligation to support you, which is terrifying. That is staggering. Yeah. It's absolutely staggering. This isn't something that we're thinking about 10 years from now, five years from now, two years from now, even five weeks from now, this is something that we should have been working on decades ago. And to draft policy and get policy adopted at a UN level is, you know, it's it's takes a long time, unfortunately. There's different projections, but as of now, there's around 70 million displaced people globally. And the, the, the projections for the end of this year, beginning of next year, looking at 150, 200 million people displaced. It's about to get a lot worse and there's not a lot of noise in terms of like policy on how we make sure that fundamentally there is a legal argument for people to be protected. So 
one of the things that I was learning about recently is an amazing um, photographer from the New York Times called Josh Hanna. And he'd done some work in China and in Mongolia where the um, the desert has basically, so lands that were grasslands that were farmed for generations as grasslands are now desert due to climate change. And that people displaced from there because they have no way to create food and crops and trade and have any employment opportunities or support themselves. They've then been moved into these camps that have been created by the Chinese government where their life is sustained, but there is absolutely no opportunity for them, you know, which we know leads to a mental health crisis and, and, and resignation syndrome and everything that comes with that. Um, and so like, what are we doing? How are we working on that? And how are we finding new opportunities and creative and innovative opportunities for people affected by it? And we're not creating any structures. So there is no way of those people moving, let alone accessing opportunities. You know, people can't access finance as we're seeing. People can't access family reunification. To not be reunified with your family and to be displaced throughout the world. We know we're going to have people who are going to struggle to live everyday life. Um, so yeah, <laughs> painting a very bleak picture, but that is what I what mm. I worry about most. And you know, I don't see any nation leading the way in it. I don't see any kind of leaders discussing it on a global level. It's definitely not touched upon in the media. What is this resignation syndrome? When there's a complete loss of hope, children go into this comatized state. So they resign from living essentially so physically their organs are functioning um but mentally they have completely resigned from from life and so they're motionless within greece within moria now that the borders are closed and that there's these people have really run out of hope so moria is a detention facility that was designed to accommodate two to four thousand people and there's currently eighteen thousand people there um under extreme circumstances with no opportunity. I mean, no opportunity to get out of detention, let alone any opportunity to, you know, have have a normal life, what resembles a normal life. And these are people who have been subject to the very worst of, you know, humanity. They've lived under conflict. They've been bombed. They've for sure lost family and friends, like children and adults who have lost that much hope that their bodies just, yeah, give out. How do you maintain your focus and that depth of the focus because I feel that you know spreading ourselves thin is what keeps so many of us from having greater impact in the world even with the best intentions it just mm -hmm. means that we can't be very effective because we care about so many different Definitely. problems how on a personal level and an organizational level have you really honed in on where you realize that you can have the biggest impact so whatever we were going to do we wanted to do it well and we wanted to make sure that if we were going to support somebody we were going to support them right into the point they didn't need us anymore and I think that's something that was very very important to Tamsin and I and so we only work with now individuals who have arrived in the UK seeking asylum and who either previously were in university or previously had a career and just doing that, I think, mm. and sticking to it. And what do you guys need right now? Um, what we need right now is so support from employers. The average time it takes for someone to get the level of English language they need to go back into work or education is around a year to 18 months with us. And then to requalify on top of that can take up to two years, even longer in dentist's case. Um, and so people have overcome that, studying, applying themselves for so long, get fully qualified, and then are going for job interviews. And they're being denied the job based on the fact that they ha they're from a country where 
people not have perceived it to be war-torn and have the perception of somebody there. And that's been really heartbreaking. You know, somebody who has overcome all this adversity to then have this preconception be the challenge that they're facing and, and also one that's really hard to, to overcome. And they've been quite corporate employers had people going into commodities, brokerage, um, trading, a PR, who one guy or two people actually who got through a three round interview. And then when the employer asked for their ID documents, sent his BRP and, and refugees have all the same rights as a British citizen to work in the UK, sent his refugee permit over and the offer was retracted. Joking. Yeah. Another amazing woman who's been with an employer on a temporary contract and then they somebody within the company said look I've heard that basically they're not going to put you on a permanent contract because they don't think clients will bill you because you're a refugee so we need employers who are looking you know who understand that what people have been through is a huge strength to a company like it brings such an incredible perspective that people are really looking for these opportunities and committed to them and that the skills and experience that people have is, is incredible and surmounts a lot of yeah, a lot of kind of UK experience. Yeah. In founding RefuAid, you have so effectively found this piece in this thousand piece puzzle of where you can create great impact and where you can really impact individuals' lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I think all of us want to be able to engage with this challenge and yet have absolutely no idea where to start. What would be your advice to someone who wants to do something, wants to show up according to those, you know, unique skills and talents that we all have to do something meaningful, but don't know what that looks like? Reaching out and getting involved and making yourself aware. I mean, volunteering literally changed my life. And I think there is a need for support, not necessarily always overseas. You can do that down, you know, down the road for sure. Um, Being kind to people I think is one thing you know like some of the stories that we find really difficult from clients are just someone yelling at them on the bus because they did they they took a while to get their English you know across and they were asking for directions and even if you're having the worst day just know that so other people are also having their worst day I think is really key I think if you're in any situation where you are responsible for recruitment it is a psychological thing that when it comes to hiring people feel more confident hiring people who who look like themselves who sound like themselves and have similar experiences to themselves and that's because we feel like we can identify with that person and we trust that we trust their experience because we've lived it that's not necessarily what's right for that role it's just something that might make a hire a recruiter feel more confident if you're in any position where you're responsible for that just checking yourself you know well actually what would someone different to me bring to this and 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 how can I do that um like funding like grassroots organizations I think when you're if you are looking to support organizations just second guessing I'm not saying that big organizations don't do amazing work they have a platform that's needed in a lot of scenarios and I'm sure they do good work but just you know are there movements that you've heard about or have been gaining traction and and looking into them there was a story that you were telling me about um, a group of leaders from an established corporation who were on a kind of quest experience this group of executives came and met with your team that's right Mm -hmm. and had a conversation what was the um, outcome of that it was a financial um, (laughs) company Mm -hmm. And they perceive themselves to be very open and liberal. And I think at a senior management level, really convinced that they were, you know, really proud of 
um, how they were supporting people from diverse backgrounds to get back on their feet financially. A handful of our clients joined us for the for the workshop and it turned out that each of those, I think it was three or four people, each of those four people had had their accounts closed by this financial institution. And so you had in a room like a bit of a face bomb moment of this institution explaining how open and welcome they are. Um, and actually following that, it ended up that senior management decided like relooked at their lives and reevaluated their purpose and decided that following money and a career projection just wasn't for them anymore and ended up moving away and, and going into working in social impact. They were all worked very hard. They've all got to a financial position where they're pretty financially independent. They're in a senior role and they just didn't feel like within the structure that they were in and within the bureaucracy that they were in, they could really enact the change that they they could do outside of it. And that it's quite inspiring. I've had that conversation with a number of people in these, you know, massive incumbents um, who are trying to ignite that internal change and trying to push the needle, but they're working in a system that is fundamentally geared against them and yeah. geared against that innovation. And so those feelings, those thoughts, the very nature of the corporate kind of DNA suppresses yeah. activism, suppresses challenging the status quo. And so increasingly we're seeing more and more professionals deciding to just completely drop it or at Which least is, take yeah. all of that professional experience and knowledge and bring it to the social impact environmental impact space because they can move more and there's more room for maneuver we are seeing people who have come from like a bigger more diverse range of backgrounds come into the sector with different skills and it's something that I've definitely re like enjoyed is that we never came into this with the mindset of like giving anybody a handout for sure but yeah a lot of charities do have that mindset and I think it's been really amazing particularly social investment and like different funding streams and like the overlap of like profit for good and what non-profit organizations are and B Corps it's like challenging the innovation and that's really exciting. It's super eye-opening because again it's relating to people you wouldn't otherwise kind of affiliate with and coming from the kind of not-for-profit space that has been like massive for me is then engaging with corporates you mm -hmm. know and sitting down with them and realizing how much positive intention there is but how many barriers there are in place and yeah. the same kind of self-limiting beliefs that I hear in the classroom working with 11 and 12 year olds who think I'm too small to make a difference you also hear in these boardrooms for and sure. it's it's staggering but but that's it. it's so easy to to fall into that state of complacency and I'll, I'll do my little bit um but now as we realize is the time when we need radicalism we mm -hmm. need people to be transformational we need people to redesign these systems and have the courage to do so um in your experience, what are some of the ingredients that create the conditions for that courage? A willingness to test the limits, pushing back. A naivety in some ways I think is important. Like when I look around at the people that inspire me who've founded organizations at the same time and grown them to be bigger or work in different spaces, we all started with a sense of naivety of... Um, yeah, of, of what we'd be taking on and where we would be today. The reason that we were able to to found the organization is that we were both in a position in our lives where we could. So I was living with family and Tamsin was a stay-at-home mum whose partner financially supported her when we first founded. And we weren't able to draw a salary for the first kind of 18 months to two years. Um, and when we were, for sure, it wouldn't have been enough to live independently in, in London. And so that was only because we were able to rely on family and friends to do that, that we were able to do it. And that makes me a little bit sad because I worry about, you know, all the creativity and innovation that there must be for young people now who, like, particularly if you're living somewhere like London, you just don't have the opportunity to, to really invest in. And I've got friends with amazing ideas who 
have financial commitments that mean they wouldn't be able to walk away from their nine to five, but need to, to really push that and flourish. It would be amazing to see more support for those ideas um, from people who just need that kind of support. I have a number of friends who, you know, have started small organizations and initiatives while they're doing their nine to five and increasingly creating more and more space and time for that. And to the point where they can make more of that transition. And so with that in mind, what would you say to Anna, you know, pre-September 2015 <laughs> before you launched into this incredible journey? Like stick to your gut. I think mm-hmm. we, I think it definitely is a young woman coming into a sector, particularly when we've worked in the finance space um, and the charity sector space, to be fair, but p- p- particularly in finance, people are very quick to give you their opinions. So not listening too much. Opinions are important. Advice to be taken lightly would be what I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. Absolutely. You just need to be like crazy enough to just go out and test it and try it and fail for yourself and and potentially come to those conclusions yourself. Yeah. But at least you'll learn in that process. And And I think the other thing is find someone who just gets it and speaks your language. Like there's no way I'd be here without Tamsin. And it's because we get it just completely you know, without even talking, That's know the page that we're on. And it gives you that confidence within each other that you've always kind of got each other's back, but you also like, it's like a supporter, you know, you're supporting each other with decisions that you make. And it's also a soundboard. I think we've got a relationship where we're not afraid of checking each other and disagreeing. And that's really important as well. Yeah. Building that tribe that just gets it exactly as you said. So you mentioned, obviously, personal relationships where you might have friends, family members who disagree with what you're doing or who didn't support you Mm -hmm. in those moments where I imagine there was so much doubt in your mind because you were taking such a radical leap yeah what kept you going and what kind of instilled the motivation to kind of set aside the naysayers and and just yeah not compromise it was just just thinking about what, what we'd seen in Greece there's a there was a guy that I met who was a teacher and he just the most passionate teacher I have ever met and he had decided in a situation with like no hope and where we didn't have anything to create his own education program for the children that were there and so on his own with no support from anyone else he he started teaching these kids and put in like a routine and in like the most absurd situation um they'd been relocated to tents in an old petting farm you know was like really mad and he just seen that as an opportunity and he he's been through such a difficult journey but he's somebody that I really went through that with and I saw and I used to leave and get on a plane and come back to my family and friends and he would still be there you know and and so I always just think of him and I don't know where he is now and there's a lot of people like that who we've met who we didn't stay in contact with and just thinking like what you can do to help that person that you don't know really keeps me going. And then also just surrounding yourself with some people who really do believe in you. So like a good friend or somebody who who you're not afraid to tell that you really fucked up. Like that you can go and say, I made a massive mistake. I've done it. You screw up a meeting with people who are very business minded and want business statistics. And you've just gone in with a story about somebody and they rip you to pieces verbally. I think it's okay to, but you just need those people that you can be like that with and, and yeah, cry and scream and ring at 3am. That's what keeps me going. And a number of young people that we've surveyed feel that they have the experience, they have the knowledge, they definitely have the passion and conviction um, about the challenges they want to take on. But they don't feel like they have the support, Mm -hmm. whether that's in their family, whether that's in their social group or from their teachers. 
and are really lacking confidence and desperately need that kind of validation of ideas and safe space to to be able to talk about these challenges in a really open way and and also kind of overcome that fear of failure. Yeah. Um, because that's what keeps so many of us kind of like rooted to the ground. Um, and it's it's reflective of the education system, right? It's not okay to screw up. Yeah. You know, it's you're you're graded on being a set of averages. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's it. And you're you're kind of like pegged against your teammates, you're pegged against your friends sure. and your peers. Um so what has helped in those situations where you feel, oh, damn, I've royally messed up? Um, how have you kind of navigated that? One thing that I found really helpful is having somebody who inspires you, who's at the end of a phone or the end of an email, when you come up with those stumbling blocks or when you're making a big decision that you're like, I think this is right and my gut's telling me it's right, but I just maybe want someone else to tell me that it's that it's not yeah. really bad. Um, and the other thing is like having people who failed Around, like to talk to too and yes. who who've you know failed and are doing okay or failed and are doing something even better than what they failed at um and I think that's been really helpful is like not being worried yeah just not being afraid to mess up and knowing that other people have messed up before you and also gone on to do great things that's it back yourself and yeah. you know have the confidence to do so because especially in your case you have first-hand experience of the problem mm-hmm. you know you've gone to the source you've had those conversations um it's very easy to out advice when you haven't actually experienced something yeah and And to overcomplicate it a lot of the like offers of support we got as a startup which there's so much of and it's so hard to navigate was like consultancies about strategy and um like brainstorming sessions with people who have absolutely no idea what you do every day and offers of like advisors who've never been you know in this situation but quite fancy being on a charity board I think it's really hard sometimes to say no as a startup because you think you should be saying yes to everything. Um, but just just taking it all with a pinch of salt and actually drowning out the noise sometimes. And we learned to say no to stuff. And that's been really valuable because it's actually just been given us the space to concentrate. You just come from the perspective of like asking a bunch of questions. Yeah, doing so, yeah, yeah, mess up. And, and something I love that you've said is like do so with a lot of humility. Yeah. You know, be super open. And people will help. Yes. That's the other thing. I think one thing that I was really scared of that Tamsin was a lot more confident with was the FCA regulations when we started lending. Like, really? Can, like, two women from Surrey just start lending money and not go to prison? Um, But we just found that actually if you need specific help if you come up with it you can ask for it there are amazing legal firms who'll do pro bono support you know when you know what your problem is I think it's when you don't really have a defined problem and people are ready to give you advice or a problem you don't yet have is when the problem you know when the difficulties start not pretending that you know everything either I think it's something I think it's it's quite a strength to not know some stuff and to to admit that it's all a learning curve and we're we're okay because we can just be like well we've never done this before so we don't know um and just keep that going my final question for you anna is what do you want your legacy to be and how can i and how can the people listening to this help you achieve that it would be we are all just the same and that if you if you want to help another person it's as simple as asking what they need and then if you truly want to help them listening and seeing if you can provide what they need and if they can't helping them find where they can get that help we all have different beliefs and experiences and values along the way but we do have the wonderful power to listen and talk to each other and just simplifying what we've created to be this aid sector and this charity sector it's not it's not a sector it's not a career it's just a person helping another person and we all have the capability to do it which is so beautifully embodied by you and Tamsin and your incredible team 
hugely inspired, very motivated. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks for listening to this Force of Nature podcast with Anna Jones. You can learn more about Anna and RefuAid in the show notes. We want to hear your questions, aha moments, musings, and of course, we want to know how you plan to stop scrolling and start solving for the problem that ignites your fire. Ahead of our next episode with Marcus J. Ball on how to challenge the status quo and take back power. Force of Nature is edited by Kazra Ferruzia, produced by James Bishop of One Fine Play, and would not be as good as it is without the wisdom of my mum, Janet Hogan. You can find me at Clover Hogan on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and stay in the loop with Force of Nature on all the same channels at forceofnature.xyz, including TikTok. Don't forget to subscribe and go check out our videos on YouTube. See you next time.